0: So I don't know if you've done anything when you were back uh, around college age that you look back and thought, you know, I probably could have planned a little better for that. Uh, that happened my first year of college. I was at Northern Arizona University, Flagstaff, Arizona, gorgeous place, three hours away from where my folks lived and where I used to live before I went away to college. And I could see the top of Mount Humphrey on the San Francisco peaks from the room that I had to take math in every morning. And I would stay in that seat looking, gazing out at the glory that God had put there for us on that mountain and thinking, I would so much rather be on that mountain than studying math right now. (laughs) And finally, after about seven weeks of studying, when it came to October, we finally had a day off. It was the fourth Monday of October in 1975, Veterans Day, that would have been the 27th. And our friends and I said, let's go up to the top of Mount Humphrey. And we said, okay. He said, it's not that far, we can see it. (laughs) So we packed a sandwich each, and a granola bar, and a canteen, and we went hiking up to the top of Mount Humphrey. Now, you can drive your car around to the backside of the mountain, which takes off about another 1,000 feet elevation, but you still got a ways to go. And so we got up there, and we saw this amazing vista to the west. You can see all the way across the border into California, To the north, you can see the rim of the Grand Canyon. You can see everywhere. It's the highest point in Arizona. It was gorgeous. We could see the glory of God all around us. And then we started reading notes that people had left inside an ammo can that had been drilled into a rock up there. And some of them said, "Uh uh-oh, storm's coming. Got to hightail it down off of here. And just about the time we were reading that one, we saw some clouds coming. And we thought, yeah, we better get down pretty quick too. So we started doing that. And we had to stop every now and then because we were a little tuckered out, and we ate another granola bar, and then we'd get going again. And then we realized, I don't think we're going to beat the sunshine. And it started getting darker and darker, and things looked different in the dark than they did going up in the sunlight. And we thought, I'm not sure that we have any landmark that we can recognize for where the car is located. Now, it's a big mountain. And you'd think that we probably would have done something to kind of leave a path for ourselves, but we thought, no, there was that big arroyo, you remember? The one that looks like this one or the one that looks like that one? Uh, I don't know. When you get to the fork of the road, take it. And we took it, and we went down the arroyo, and it felt like we were probably going the right direction. I said, well, we're going downhill. That's good. But when we got to the bottom, and it was really dark, and we were really tired, and it was starting to get pretty cold because it was October in Flagstaff, we thought, I think that we came down on this side of the car, and we have to turn left and keep going around there on this flat plane to find the car. But if we had gotten that wrong, if we had come down to the left of the car and turned left, it would have taken us a long way away until we finally saw the road and we would have gone, "Uh uh-oh. That means we have to turn around and go all the way back to where we started and then some before we can find the car. So we just prayed and did our best and all of a sudden, there was a glimpse just this little bit of a flash of light, and we thought, wait a minute, that looks like light coming off of a windshield or something. Maybe the moonlight glinting off of something. We don't normally see that off of rocks and stuff, so I think that just might be the car. And our hearts quickened, and our steps quickened, and we thought, that might be, could it be? And sure enough, we got a little bit closer, and we could tell that there was some moonlight shining off of what we knew now was the car. We had gone the right way. And so we knew that it had given us hope. We thought, we can make it. And then we we actually said, we're saved. And it gave us direction because until then we felt a little bit directionless. And it gave us resolve. We can finish this journey after all. It gave us all three of those things. And that, I think, is what we're starting to get at when Jesus finishes instructing the crowd. And then he's going to do this uh, teaching moment on the Mount of Transfiguration for us. Recent events that give us context are that Jesus gets real with his inner circle disciples about the upcoming events that are going to have to happen in order for redemption to take place. He's going to be mistreated, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, and he's going to be resurrected. They didn't get it very much. Peter has that reaction. Oh, there's got to be a better way. So Jesus has to rebuke Peter, correct him. And then he gathers the crowd around, as you'll recall from last week, and he does that teaching that says, okay, let me get this straight. If you're going to follow me, it's not just for the free food like you've gotten when I've been able to multiply the bread and the fish. You've got to pick up your cross, deny yourself, push aside your self-will, and start going according to my will. You're going to follow me. That's what it takes to be my follower. So about a week after that teaching took place, we get to this passage, Mark 9, verses 2 through 13. Let me read that passage, and then we're going to unpack it and see how God gives us his glory so that we can find hope, direction, and resolve. Starting in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. And then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Rabbi. It's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. And then they asked him. Why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. Jesus knew that in order to bear the cross, we need a glimpse of glory. And Mark, in this passage, shows us some amazing aspects of this unprecedented glimpse of glory that these three disciples got to see. Well, first of all, we need to know about this word, Jesus morphed. The word there for transfigured is metamorphed, but we've shortened it in English to morphed. You studied about it probably in biology way back in high school or earlier than that. Tadpoles morph. Something happens and they're a tadpole and then something transforms them into a different form. Same animal, same creature, but they're transformed. They're morphed. A pupa morphs into a butterfly. Very different than what we see in its original form compared to its secondary form. They start out in One form and then something amazing happens. Matthew says it this way about this unusual transformation that happened on the mountain. Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. That had to have been very unique, especially based on the disciples' reaction. Matthew, uh, or Luke, says it this way. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. I don't know if you've been really close to a flash of lightning, but that's pretty bright. Joy and I went inside after watching a storm approach when we lived out in Tecumseh one time and we'd just gotten in the the door and a flash of lightning hit one of the trees in our front yard and the sonic boom just knocked us right down inside the house. It was like, whoa, felt like an explosion. So I can imagine this kind of phrase that they're using, the kinds of terms they're using to try to describe the indescribable means that it must have been jaw-dropping and awe-inspiring. But I think we need to notice, too, that Jesus did not change out of humanity into a supernatural being. It's probably more accurate to say that he morphed out of mortality into the temporarily revealed glory of God that was always his. God incarnate. Hard for us to grasp. Impossible for us to fully grasp. And yet, Jesus does some of these things on purpose because he wants us to be thinking about these things that we can't fully grasp for good reasons. So what's the source of light? In a lot of these things, we would think of as being a shaft of light appeared. This is one of the times when I saw the glory of God. I was in Phoenix, and I drove my dearly beloved Joy, whom I was falling in love with, out to South Mountain Park. Or no, North Mountain Park, on the north side of Phoenix Valley, because I knew a little spot that you could drive to and park and look out over the whole valley stretched out before you. And where I normally keep my antacids because I had a lot of trouble back then when I would get nervous, I put a ring because that's really a romantic place to keep a ring. And I put a ring where the antacids would be. And I was just kind of praying and asking God for a sign because I thought, I've never done this before, God. I need some help here. So give me a sign if this is the right time or not. And in Phoenix, we get a lot of sunshine. There's a lot of sunshine year-round just about. But on that day, it turned out to be really, really cloudy. And I thought, I don't even know what sign I'm asking for, God. I'm really tripping up here. I don't have a lot of wisdom. I'm not sure what to do. But please, just give me a sign. And just about the time I was praying that and the conversation was waning, the clouds parted, I'm not making this up. A big shaft of light came out and just illuminated our little Subaru. And I reached over. And Joy thought that I had an upset stomach. But instead of pulling back the mailbox, I pulled out this box and I said, would you be my wife? I'm gonna leave you hanging on that one. <laughs> Well, of course she did. She's right there. This summer will be 45 years. So apparently it worked. <laughs> but that was a glory moment for me. It was like, wow, but where did this light emanate from? It didn't come because God parted the clouds. Look at what happens here. Jesus was the source of light, light emanated from within Jesus himself. He is the glory of God, He's the light of the world. And John, who was given some glimpses to write about, I was glad, Steve, that you read from Revelation, because we see a lot of this glory being shown to us, because it's indescribable, but they're trying, they're trying really hard to describe the indescribable. And he says that in this perfect place that God is preparing for those who are in Christ, there won't be a need for a sun or a moon. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates this new city, this new place. And the Lamb is the light. That's crazy. I mean, that's crazy talk. And yet it's true, and it happened because we saw a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. In a biblical benediction, which I use a lot, in fact, at the end of weddings, I'll probably be, probably be using that one at the end of Jacob and Hannah's wedding this coming summer. And we hear it, it's from Numbers. It's the one that starts out, may the Lord's face shine upon you. You've heard that phrase in there. Well, on that mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, in front of Peter, James, and John, Jesus' face literally (laughs) shone upon them. Whoa. And Luke adds a detail and shows us that both Moses and Elijah appeared in, quote, glorious splendor. So this is a very unusual, unprecedented event. Nothing ever quite like it has happened before, and nothing like it will ever happen again, I dare say. So why Moses and Elijah? A lot of people ask the question. It's a good question. Why these two guys from Israel's history? There were a lot of good patriarchs they could have chosen, a lot of notable figures. Why Moses and Elijah? Because they were representing the law and the prophets. These had been God's way for years of preparing God's people for the coming Messiah. Moses represented the law, and God didn't provide the law so that people could measure up to it. We find out by reading all the rest of the New Testament, and in fact, they couldn't. The law revealed that we were imperfect and incapable of reaching that kind of perfection, which is why we needed a savior. We needed somebody to fulfill the law in us. And I think it was there as well because it personified ahead of time what was gonna be transpiring because God wanted them to have all these ceremonies And the celebrations and things that represented the Messiah to come in their minds. So that when he did come, they could reflect back on him and go, oh, I get it. This represented that. This represented that. And Christ fulfilled all of that. So God was doing all these things in preparation for the coming Messiah. Now, I shared this several years ago. But it's a great story. And it may be a little apocryphal. But it's a great parable. And so it's true in many of its facts about LaGuardia, the mayor of New York City. And I think it helps us see a little bit of what I'm talking about in terms of Christ fulfilling the law and that's what Moses represented, the whole law that God gave us. The story's told about Fiorello LaGuardia. you can guess his origin, when he was mayor of New York City and this happened during the worst days of the Great Depression, things were bleak. And he was also in leadership then during World War II. And he was called, fortunately, an adoring nickname. He was called the Little Flower because he was rather diminutive in stature. He was about five foot four. And he always wore a fresh carnation in his lapel every day. So that was his nickname. Now, he was a colorful character, too, because he would do things like hop on a fire truck and ride with the fireman out to the fires to see what was going on and to see if he could help in some way. And when they would have people that would go on strike in the newspaper industry, he would go on the radio and read the funny papers and the comics for the kids. He was just an unusual character. He would take entire orphanages to baseball games in New York, interesting guy. So one bitterly cold night, this was way back in 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court in one of the poorest sections of New York City at that time, and he told the judge, so I'm going to give you the night off. I'm going to take over. You go home and spend some time with your family. So Mayor LaGuardia sits behind the bench and starts hearing the different cases in night court. And within just a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him. What was the charge? She had stolen a loaf of bread from a nearby shop. And he said, okay, what, uh, what is your response, ma'am? What's your story? She said, well, actually my daughter's husband had deserted her. Her daughter was sick, so she was left trying to feed the grandchildren. They were starving, and there's no food in the house. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen was not willing to drop the charges. He said, it's a real bad neighborhood here, your Honor. It's a real bad neighborhood. And somebody's gotta pay the price, and somebody needs to send the message to these other people that they can't come into my shop and just take stuff at will. And the mayor was thinking, okay, well, she's got to be punished. He turned to the woman and he said, the law says I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. And the law says it's gotta be $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he was pronouncing the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his wallet. He pulled out a $10 bill. He tossed it into his famous sombrero that was there on the bench. (laughs) And he said, Here's the $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. (laughs) So, the following day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount having been contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner, (laughs) while some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations, and some New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. what a great picture. The law can't be changed, but I'm going to fulfill the law. I'm going to remit the fine. That's what Moses represented. God sending the law to reveal that when Jesus did what he did, he took care of it on our behalf. Then Elijah, what does he re- represent? Well, he represents the prophets. He's kind of like the captain of team prophets. Elijah was the original, the OG of the one calling out in the wilderness, make way, make straight the ways of the Lord. That was the original. And just as Moises, Moises. (laughs) apparently I've been given the gift of sounding like a Jew. I don't know where it came from. Just as Moses pointed to Jesus as the one who would fulfill the law, Elijah points to Jesus as the one who would fulfill all the prophecies that were given to them in the Old Testament. And I've taken you through a few of the tests to show why these prophecies were really true and how impossible it is that they would just coincide with one person. They had to have been there. So Jesus, we find out in scripture then, is the one greater than Moses, as we see in Hebrews. And he is the prophet, not just one of the prophets, as we see in Deuteronomy 18. In this glory moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, we catch a glimpse of the supremacy of Christ, he was greater than both these representatives of both the law and the prophets. So there's the supremacy shown very clearly. And then, as if that's not enough, when Peter's trying to fill the silence by going, Lord, let's build some tabernacles. We'll set up some tents. Let's go camping up here so that we can have a memorial to these guys. God's not having it. His voice comes down out of heaven and he goes, this is my son. I think that would shut me up when you hear God's voice that clearly, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Now all the Old Testament prophets prepared the way for the Lord. They wanted to call people back to God. And Elijah was the captain of the team and he did a lot of things that many of the other prophets couldn't do. In fact, he was a miracle working prophet. And yet Christ is supreme. Christ did more miracles and the different kinds of miracles, especially the miracle of paying for our sins on the cross that Elijah merely foreshadowed. So, like Christ, Elijah was despised and rejected. He was alone, unlike Jesus, and this is where we find something interesting, Elijah did not die a physical death. He went up to heaven through that chariot of fire, which is very unusual, and it's also a unique event in history. So we see actually a foreshadowing of Christ's second coming because he's going to come for the living and the dead. Elijah being the living, Moses being the dead because Moses did die a physical death. But when Jesus comes back to judge, he's going to judge everybody, those who have gone before him and those who are still alive at his coming. And we need to celebrate that and look forward to it. Now, there's an unlikely preacher. It's interesting how God chooses to get some of his preaching done. Places that I might not have expected. One of the unusual preachers that I found was somebody who really got this right, and it's Bono from U2. (laughs) Because he was asked this question, and I want to read you his response because it's pretty smart. He was asked, "Um, do you think the claim of Jesus' divinity is far-fetched? And he says no. He says, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes something like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a really interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius, but actually Christ just doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take, but don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know you were expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these Roman creeps over here, but I actually am the Messiah. So what you're left with is either Christ who was who he says he was, the Messiah, or he's a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man strapping himself to the bomb, and and he's got King of the Jews on his head, and they're putting him up on the cross, and he's going, okay, martyrdom, here we go, bring on the pain. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, now that's far-fetched. Interesting that Bono got it right. Hmm. Now what about the tents? Why would Peter say, let's build tents? I really appreciate uh, in our small group that we have one fellow who likes to give Peter some of the benefit of the doubt once in a while, and I appreciate that very much, especially because I identify with Peter so much. But why build tents? Why would he blurt out in verse 5, rabbis, wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three tents, three shelters as memorials. Why would he interrupt this holy moment by blurting this out? Well, to his credit, Mark shows us that all three of them, Peter, James, and John, were terrified, and so he didn't know what to say. And there are certain personality types that that's just what they're gonna do. They gotta fill the gap. If things go quiet, they're gonna have to speak up because they're uncomfortable with silence. That's one possibility. But here's another, and I like this too. Temporary shelters or tabernacles were something that people would erect when the Jews would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And maybe, if we're going to give him some credit, maybe Peter was saying, I want to be worshipful because I want to celebrate kind of like we would do at the Feast of Tabernacles by celebrating God's provision because you're showing us that you're providing for us. And we're going to look forward to God's coming kingdom because that's what they would do during that feast. So maybe he was just trying to worship. And if so, good on you, Peter. Good job. Here's where it fell a little bit short, though. And this is why I think God's voice needed to come in and make sure that we got it right. By wanting to erect three tabernacles, one for each of these three guys, he was putting them all on the same level. And Christ is supreme, which is why God says, This is my son. These two guys are great, they're good representatives, but they were forerunners. This is the main Messiah. He's the one you need to be listening to. And he continued to point to Christ as the supreme example of God himself incarnate come to show himself to us. God is revealed and his glory through Christ. I love what this pastor named Lee Eklav, he's a good writer. He's in the Chicago area. He wrote this about the incident. He said, Jesus had begun teaching them about the coming cross. They, meaning Peter, James, and John, would watch Jesus be rejected, and they would watch him suffer terribly. Soon, it would seem that no one claimed Jesus as God's Messiah, and they would hear Jesus cry in the agony of his death throes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, There on that mountain, it was as if God were saying, you're going to see and hear all kinds of profoundly confusing things in the days ahead. But do not doubt this for a minute. This is the son I love, and he's the one you are supposed to listen to. He's the Messiah, and the living word, no matter what it will look like. Trust me. gave him some resolve he gave him hope a direction and resolve no matter what happens i know we can make it and they did this is not the finish line for them though they wanted to make that the finish line they wanted to say we want to bask in the glory we all do when we see god's glory i wanted to sit up there on north mountain park for a long time but we had to drive back down the mountain and go to work and figure out how we're going to pay our bills and all the stuff that you have to do when you get married Whatever glorified state you happen to find yourself in, if it's a worshipful experience, if it's being the recipient of forgiveness, which can reveal God's glory to us, because when we're the ones who are forgiven, we get to experience grace, and we think, wow, if I could just bask in this for a while. Maybe it's a beautiful scene or a sunrise that you get up and you say, oh, I just want to bask in this. I want that sunrise to last for four hours so I can just bask in it. it's only there for about 10 seconds, and it starts to change. Whatever glory we might experience we need to be aware it's just part of the journey. We've got a lot more journey left to go. When we saw the glint off that windshield of the car we knew we still had a a good hike ahead of us but at least we knew we were going to be able to finish the journey. There was one guy that I had the privilege of baptizing back when we were meeting at the high school and we used to use the pool to do our baptisms. Even had to hire a lifeguard to be there for us. I don't know what kind of Pastor, they thought I was, but we had to have somebody there just in case. And so we were taking the long walk down that long hallway, and it was a long walk, let me tell you. And we nicknamed it the Green Mile, based on the movie with Tom Hanks. Because, in a sense, it was like somebody was marching to their death. But it was a a symbolic death, of course. But the person who was going to be baptized was going to be identified with Christ's death, burial, laid under the water, and resurrection. When you come back out again, that's what baptism signifies. And Randy had been reading the scriptures that I had sent him all about baptism and what it means and the symbolism and why it was important for us and that it's kind of like an outward expression of an inward commitment. It's the commitment that keeps us tied together with Christ. But we want people to know about it, just like when I wear a wedding ring. I do that because I want people to know that this lady who was revealed to me by the shaft of light is indeed the person that God had for me, and I'm not ashamed to say, yes, I'm married to that woman over there, she's so wide. So I, I did all that, and this guy, he got this really serious look on his face as we were just turning the corner, getting ready to do the final leg of the journey to his, quote, death. He said, you know, I think it's just dawning on me, it's just sinking in. I said, what's that? He said, I was thinking of this as being like the culmination of a journey. He said, but this is really just the starting line, isn't it? And I thought, yes. He gets it. He understands it. Yes, exactly. This is the starting point. This is not the finish line. And it harkens back to Jesus' own baptism. We understand that was the beginning of his earthly ministry. He didn't have to get baptized. He had no sin to have to repent from. But he did it to show us by example what we needed to do as he began that journey. And we can tell that the glory of God came down upon him at that time. The Holy Spirit came down in the form of a a dove. Uh, The Father's voice was heard, very similar to what we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Both of those things had this affirmation from God to say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. But that was just the starting point. Jesus had a long journey to go to to finish what God gave him to do on our behalf. And so I'm glad to know that by looking back at this particular event in history, it helps us rekindle that hope that he put in us. Maybe some of us can go all the way back to the time when we were baptized and we remember. I remember that. I'll remember it until the day I die. I remember coming up out of that water and seeing all the smiling faces of the people who were there to affirm, yes, this is the best decision you'll ever make in your life. I remember that day. So we can all do that. It's a good thing, but it's just a starting point. And by remembering that, it gives us resolve to say, I'm going to finish the journey and I want to finish it well. Now what about this crazy stuff about Elijah's return? That seems a little cryptic and hard to understand. Verse 11, they ask him, Why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And Jesus responds, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come And they chose to abuse him just as the scripture predicted. So if I'm up there, like Peter, James, and John, and if I had just seen Elijah in person in this glorified state, I'm thinking, um, (laughs) why the teaching about Elijah coming back before the Messiah comes, like it says in the book of Malachi? Hmm, It seems odd at first. This is where we start to see how Jesus is, in a sense, giving a new nickname of sorts to John the Baptist. He's not really talking about the O.G. Elijah, Elijah the First, so to speak. He's talking about John the Baptist, the one who had been terribly mistreated and, in fact, beheaded by King Herod. And he's the one who had said, and he's the one, John the Baptist, who had come in the spirit of Elijah and in the power of Elijah. He was fulfilling what Elijah started. So that's why we consider John the Baptist the last of the Old Testament prophets, in fact, because he's so linked to that Elijah. Now, you would expect that an Elijah who was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, who had looked like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration, you'd think, I wouldn't expect that guy to be the kind of guy that Jesus is describing. That's because he wasn't describing the O.G. Elijah, he was describing John the Baptist. So Jesus is showing them that the Elijah who prepared the way for him had actually foreshadowed his own future by suffering and even dying, we're talking about John the Baptist here, for fulfilling his role as the forerunner of Christ. So John the Baptist, Elijah II, so to speak, served as a living and dying picture of the Messiah who was to come. And he he fulfills all four of the suffering servant songs that we see in Elijah. So that's why there could be no tents on the mountain since this was the starting point, not the finish line. It would all be made clear soon enough, but not the day of the transfiguration. All the fulfilled prophecy, the full glory of Christ, the fulfillment of the law, all of it, would become clear after Jesus had suffered died and then rose from the dead then they would start to look back on all that stuff and they go okay I get it now so Jesus is saying don't tell anybody about this yet think about what they would have said if they'd gone down the mountain and told them what they'd just seen anyway they'd be going yeah right I don't know if people could take them seriously But they needed to wait. And then once they saw that, then they would have everything they needed to put all those pieces together and then just tell them as much as you want to tell them, which is what we see happening as the church starts to flourish. So these glimpses of glory give us hope, direction, and resolve. They still work even in our lives today, just as they were given to Peter, James, and John. And I've just got to ask this. Have you come to the place where you've even reached the starting point yet? Have you reached that place where you can say, I get it. I've seen enough. I understand that there's evidence for me to trust that Christ is who he says he was. He's not a nutcase. He, in fact, is God incarnate. I want to follow him. I want him to forgive my sins, and I want to make him the direction of my life. I want to focus on him because that's what's going to help make my life make sense. If you haven't, you can start that journey by saying, God, forgive me. I want to follow you. Let me do that. I want to get to know you through your word by hanging out with other people who are on the same journey. We're a whole bunch of imperfect people who are being chipped away through your Holy Spirit into becoming more and more like you because you're transforming us into your image, and it's going to be a lifetime process, but I'm ready for it. I want to take that journey. That's what you can do to start that process. And it may be, too, that you're just at a point that even though you've been following Christ for a long time, the journey's getting tough and you've hit a few bumps in the road, and there have been some difficult times, and things become extremely unmanageable in your life, and you're thinking, I don't know. I'm not sure, I I may have sort of lost my sense of direction right now. I'm not sure where I parked the car. Whatever's happening in your life, I gotta say, you can take heart, because this message allows me to say, God's still got this. He just wants to redirect you so that you're focusing right on Christ, because he'll show you the way. He'll show you the way all the way to the end of the journey, and we can make it. He'll give you a sense of direction and a resolve to say, I'm picking myself back up again. I know he's going to give me the second wind. I can keep going. We're going to finish this journey, and we're going to finish strong because I'm plugged into the vine just like a branch, and so yes, I can finish this, not because I can do it in my own strength, but because Christ is in me, and he he who began that good work in me is going to be faithful to complete it. God worked all those things, the difficult things together for good for those who loved him and were called according to his purpose, including Christ and his death and burial and resurrection, as he remitted the fine on the behalf of sinners who didn't deserve it. And he'll do that for you. Isn't it good to know that he still does that kind of work in us? Let's pray. Father, I am very, very grateful that you are still in the business of showing people the way. And I'm grateful for the glimpses of glory that you keep putting in our path so that we too can be awestruck and so we can be directed back even to passages like this one that we've looked at today knowing that you're going to give us a sense of direction and a tremendous hope because we're looking to that light of the world that outshines everybody else. And so may we trust in the supremacy of Christ. May we follow you, even though the journey gets tough at times, knowing that we can make it to the end. We can. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you for your encouragement to all of us. We want to take that breath in, breathe in the Holy Spirit who charges us up and gives us a new sense of direction and hope and resolve so that we can keep walking firmly with our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.